Tonight, we're going back into a series that we started back in January. You guys remember that we spent 13 or 14 weeks on the book of Matthew back earlier this year, and we took a break. We took actually a long break. We spent eight weeks talking about what non-Christians think of Christianity. We spent about 10, 11 weeks doing a series on other religions. And then at the end of those series, everybody's like, wow, I can't believe we're not doing any scripture. We need to go back in. So the pendulum swings completely the other way now. We're going back into the book of Matthew. The last couple series we did were pretty exciting. I loved them. I love talking about what non-Christians think of Christianity. I loved about analyzing the church. I really liked looking at other religions, uh, spending time focusing on those. And Morgan and Jeremy led us through a couple of them. And we spent a lot of time just wrestling. I actually love that dialogue we had on Islam, on the Mormon church, and then followed up with meeting Richard and interviewing him. And I was not looking forward to Matthew. Is there anything in there that's that exciting compared to what we just did? And I mean, just listen to that for a moment. You're like, is there anything exciting in the Bible? I mean, are you allowed to say that? I should just lose my job just for saying that, except that they didn't hire me, so they can't fire me. So anyway, that's, can't, can't lose my job. So I, I did something to get back into Matthew. It was a little crazy. I think only one person in the group has done it other than me, and that's Ben. He's nuts. I went back and listened to all 13 podcasts of Matthew from the beginning all the way through. And i got to tell you something, honestly. There is some awesome stuff in what we covered. There is some awesome stuff in what came out of the discussion in this room. And, and like I said, in the spirit of confession, I was kind of thinking like, yeah, it's just not going to be as fun and interactive. There was more interaction, more laughter, more comments, more wrestling in those than I think almost any series we've done in a long time. And I'm praying, in fact, we're going to do that in a second, that that's going to happen again as we go forward. Because the Sermon on the Mount is some of the toughest stuff and the most interesting stuff in the Gospel of Matthew. It's probably the most interesting stuff Jesus said. And we walk through that line by line. It was so rich. So here's my challenge. It's going to sound like a crazy challenge. Go back and listen to them. Go back and listen to what we captured. Some of you are like, I was here, I remember. You know what? I taught them. And I don't remember half the stuff that was on there. All right? I studied for hours and hours and hours before we presented them. And there were still questions. I was like, yeah, what's the answer to that? Like, I'm waiting, you know, to hear what the answer was going to be. Because the Gospels, no, all of Scripture, is so rich. It's so deep. There's so much wisdom that it's easy to forget very quickly things that you just studied a few months ago. I bet you if I pulled out some of the questions we finally settled and gave you a quiz, most of us, including me probably before I went back and listened to them, would probably get a lot of them wrong because it's so quick to leave our minds. So I know it sounds crazy, but I'm going to recommend them to you anyway because they surprised me. Go back and listen to the richness that was captured in those talks. Let's move forward. Here is what we kind of did. I'm not going to do a big review. It's too much. But just to remind you of how the chapters lay down. In chapter 3, we looked at John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. Chapter 4, we walked through the temptation, Jesus beginning his ministry, calling the first disciples, and spending some time just healing. That was chapter 4. In chapter 5, we actually began the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. We looked at the teachings on salt and light, murder, adultery, oaths, turning the other cheek, and love for enemies. It took us two or three, I think actually almost four weeks just to walk through chapter five. All the richness of teaching that was contained there. In chapter six, we spent time giving to the needy, those teachings. About when you give, when you pray, when you fast, not if. 
and the hard one about do not worry, understanding his teachings about anxiety and worry. In chapter 7, we skipped a small section. We're going to start there on judging. But we did the teachings on asking, seeking, knocking, the narrow and wide gates, a tree and its fruit, and the wise and foolish builder. And if I could just bring you back on the wise and foolish builder, remember Jesus' point is whoever hears these words and doesn't do them is the person who's the foolish builder. That's one of the reasons we need to go back and remember all those things we talked about because we don't remember them, it's a pretty good chance we're probably not even implementing them. So let's talk about judging and judging others. What I want to do is I want to hand you a card tonight. If you guys will take one. Here's what I want you to do. You can start thinking about it even before you get the card. We're going to take a few minutes to just do this. You're not turning this in. This is not one of the interactive ones you have to turn in. This is just for you. I want you to write down on the card an instance or a circumstance or maybe more where people have judged you. Where you've been judged. Fairly or unfairly. Doesn't matter. Just write down instance. It could be a, a, a characteristic about you. It could be a circumstance, something that happened. Let's do that for a few seconds. And on the back side, I want you to write the things that you judge others for. Whether it's a characteristic or a specific instance, a behavior. You can keep writing while I pray over these things that you're doing and open up our time tonight. Lord, thank you that your word is so much more relevant even today than we uh, imagine it to be. Thank you that your wisdom goes beyond our ability to even contain it. Lord, as we open up your scriptures again tonight and begin again to study the book of Matthew, Holy Spirit, illuminate this text for us. Draw our hearts near to the text, not just our minds. Let us wrestle at a deep level, Lord, and come out changed people. I dare to ask, Lord, that not one single person remain unchanged in this room as we wrestle with your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the true teacher and illuminator of this text. Thank you, Lord, that you're in our midst. Pray this in your name. Amen. My guess is that there's some things that are on your sheets that are might be personal. Or maybe some of you, like me, when asked to do an exercise like this, just stare at the paper and go, I can't even put it down. Like it's hard for this to come out because it's going to hurt for me to write down what I really feel about people judging me or what I judge others for because I might have to confront it. That's a difficult thing. Here we are in the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, a last piece of the Sermon on the Mount that we didn't have time to do. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. You know, there are some things that we talk about in the church all the time that are kind of curious phrases. And whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, this phrase that I put up on the screen seems to be one that we use all the time. The Bible says you're not supposed to judge. 
When do we use that phrase the most? Because we just read, by the way, here's verse 1, do not judge, or you too will be judged. So if I put this one up on the screen, the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. Is that a true statement? The Bible says not supposed to judge. You see, the times when I hear this the most from people is when somebody's coming to correct them. Like somebody will come and say, hey, I'm not sure that that was the best way to handle the situation. And the response is, the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. Or maybe you've heard another way. Who are you to judge? Right? You're not supposed to do that. So we use it kind of as a defense. We put it up as a shield. But we put it up as a shield to any type of criticism. And I want to point out right from the beginning, when you look at something simple like do not judge or you too will be judged, we've wrestled with this in this room. In fact, I think Philip has wrestled with this sometimes. Like, what do you mean don't judge? Like, we're just supposed to accept everything? Like, everything goes? No judgment? No matter what anybody's doing? And we know that's not true because Scripture tells us that we're supposed to go to a brother in sin. Or There's specific things set up. So what does it mean not to judge? Yeah. Um, I've heard it kind of used in the context of like telling someone that oh like you're gonna go to hell like you're like judging that extent like your eternity like you're which is only left for God to judge. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah. Not judging within the realms of personal opinion. Okay. Those both seem to kind of come from the same place, right? Like not imposing your views on others type of judgment. You see, we throw this up a lot into people's faces, and I want to point out right away as we understand the scripture that the word used as judge here has two meanings. It's used somewhere else in scriptures to mean to test, to evaluate. So in this case, it is the negative connotation of the word, like do not judge. It doesn't mean don't evaluate. It doesn't mean don't test. In fact, in scripture, we're told to test things. We're told that in 1 John. We're told that in Thessalonians. Like, test things so that we can make sure that they're okay. That's a different type of judging. I want to be careful of that because if you just throw this phrase up to everything, it seems like we should just let everything into the church. Whatever. Whatever goes. Don't judge. You're not the judge. God's the judge. Let them do whatever they want. That, that isn't really the scripture that I'm reading. Philip? I think that the, it's the heart in it because it says, like, like don't judge or you too will be judged. And then that goes on with the whole like, speck in your brother's eye and the whole plank in your eye. That it's not that it's bad to try and say, hey, there's a speck in your eye, we need to take it out. It's the issue that you're not really concerned with the sin itself. Because if it was, if you were, you would be looking at your own sin because it's greater. And the same idea with the judging. So it's not that judging someone is wrong. It's that judging them when you need to be judged more, that's a problem. Like, that it's a hypocrisy or a heart issue that, like, hey, is my heart trying to just beat down on this person to make myself feel better? Or am I really trying to, like, promote godliness in them or myself? Like, it's sort of an issue that we should be focusing on ourselves if we're trying to promote godliness first and also with the same person, or at least working with them and not judging them. Okay, yeah. Mine's kind of on that same, like, issue. Also, too, like, people will make a scale, like a value scale. Do you know what I mean? Like, your sin is worse than my sin, or this sin is worse than that sin. And, like, it's the same thing about, like, your heart. So maybe, like, you judge to either make yourself feel better or be like, you're worse than me or I'm better than you, even though I sin somehow, like, my sin is not as big as your sin. So let's fix, like, focus on you first and fix this first. So it's, like, a heart thing. So maybe it's, like, judging that, like, you know, value scale for sin. 
Because sin is sin. It's all, it's all bad. Okay, let's read it together. Let's take a look at it. Here is Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. This comes from Jewish teaching that's very prominent. A kind of measured response. Okay? A kind of whatever you use to measure will be measured against. And it comes in scripture a number of places. In other places, it's used to talk about giving. Here, it's being used to talk about judgment. The measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice in the example, is there kind of an even level of judgment going on? Is there an even level of sin going on in the example? No, he's talking about a speck versus your plank. Now, is it like a plank the way we think of it, like this big? No, it actually is like a much larger splinter maybe. Something much larger is going on. The point is not what exactly, how big is it? The point is it's greater than a speck. It's great enough that you can't see clearly, and yet you want to look at the speck in your neighbor's eye. How often do we do this? All the time. That's even a dumb question to ask. It's like, we know that we do this all the time. I think right now, if you think back to what you wrote, or maybe what you didn't write, think about that for a moment, the number of times that we do that. What concerns me into making this into practical application is not the truth that's contained here. There's two points I want to take out of this. The first one is this is not saying you can't have a standard. It's not saying that there's no measure to test or evaluate things. That's a different use of the word that's translated as judge here. For example, in 1 John 4, 1, using the same words, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Okay? If I was going to use the same word, it would say judge the spirits. So a measure of testing a measure of evaluation, a measure of analysis is okay, even among believers. Like somebody comes up to you and says something, yeah, you're supposed to judge what they're saying. You're supposed to judge their action to see if it measures up, not judge their action in the way of like sitting in judgment on them, especially when you have the same plank issue in your eye or maybe a different one. It's just a larger sin. So I want to be clear because we keep using that phrase like, Hey, the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. And I've heard that more often said among Christians when someone comes up with a corrective word. I've heard that more often said, not, not when people are talking just about religious diversity or something, although that's when non-Christians use it the most. You know, you say, hey, if you don't believe in Jesus, they go, oh, you're not supposed to judge. It's like, okay, that's right. Let's just throw out the whole Bible, you know, because <laughs> no standard in there could apply because I'm not supposed to judge. I'm just supposed to think, yeah, we'll see. We'll just roll the dice, and when we get there, we'll figure it out. That's not why God gave us his word. He gave us a standard. He gave us the law. He gave us a lot of things to follow. So that's the first instance I want to just get off the table. That doesn't mean that there's just no standard. But the second thing is really the application that drives us nuts here. We don't do this. In, the, in our churches, forget in our churches, in this group, we don't do this. I mean, there have been 
instances, even among us, where we are so quick to be critical of somebody else. And as you mentioned, there seems to be sometimes a prioritizing of sin, maybe. But even if you don't do that, just the fact that you sit and talk about the sin of somebody else, that's not a word of correction. It's gossip flavored with judgment. How do we avoid doing this? Yeah. I'm still not seeing where you're defining the, the difference between or what judging means. Because they're saying, well, there is a standard, but we shouldn't be judging. Like, I understand that there, there's, there is a difference. I just don't see where it is. If we have a standard and you and I conclude together, like, that person's not really meeting the standard. We need to find a way to talk to them about it, to help them about it. That's not the kind of negative judgment I'm talking about. The kind of negative judgment, and by the way, there is an intent to the first one. It really is about the attitude. It's to love, correct, and bring the body of Christ into a healthy place, right? Or if it's not somebody who's a Christian, just to see them come into a more healthy place because we have to trust that God's law or God's standard is good for everybody, not just for Christians. Too often our side of it is the other one, where we just look at people and say, that person's a bad person. It's to denigrate, not to correct. It's to make us feel better or for us to criticize without any corrective intent. That's the type of judgment that I really feel is damaging. That's the type of judgment he's talking about. He's saying, don't do that. It'll be done to you. But it's worse than that. It becomes that cycle of judgment that gets you to a place where the whole thing collapses because we're constantly at each other. In this sermon, he's saying, this is not the way that I want my disciples to be. Yeah. My professor... Um Give me a good example of judgment. It's, it's when you look at someone and think that, that the value of their life is less. And in a way, you, you devalue their life. And that's, that's, when it, that's what Christ was talking about. No, yeah. Um, if I personally see someone that has, is going against the standard that has however, like what the Bible says, uh, I personally, like, and I might be wrong here, don't think that it's wrong to think negatively of them. And, but let me clarify, as long as there is, like I said, a corrected intent in there, that it's not to, uh, like Angela said, to like, devalue the person. Like, I don't necessarily think negatively means you think less of them than yourself. And the reason why I'm thinking that is because if I see sin of myself, like, I think it's justified for me to think more negatively of myself than I did if there wasn't sin. Not that, like, I'm a terrible person and, like, go and self-wallowing for the rest of my life. I still want to correct that. But if you don't think negatively about it and you don't actually have a passionate, like, negative feeling about it, you're not going to want to change it. Okay, can I offer a negative feeling that I would prefer? Probably would be grieving. Okay, like, for example, if you were to wallow in your own self-pity over sin, you've identified that's wrong. Romans 8 tells us, like, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That is not... And he's just concluded talking about the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. But he still comes back with, but the point is, there is no condemnation. If we take that standard to ourselves, we need to apply it to everybody else too. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't grieve sin in a place of repentance, right? Not just our sin, but even any sin. When we see somebody who's not acting correctly, or when you hear something where somebody's done something to hurt another person, we should grieve. We should be shocked by that sin, but not in the kind of judgmental way we're used to, but more in like, wow, that pains me. That that's happening either in the body or outside of the body. 
that's probably still an appropriate response that you might qualify as being a negative emotion. But it's because we want the world to be better. We want that person to be better because God's law deserves to be obeyed just because he's God. As opposed to thinking of the person negatively by saying, I thought that person was a really good person. And based on what I've heard now, I don't think they're really that good of a person. That's not grieving. That is denigrating them and making yourself feel better. Yeah. I think to kind of try to answer a little bit of your question about how if, if someone else is doing something wrong, I think that the Bible talks about it a little bit. I forgot where it's at, but how it talks about if, if a brother's doing wrong, go to them in secret and talk to them, and if not, bring a friend. And then if they still don't want to change, then bring them to the head of the, the church. And So I think that there's a difference between like correction to try to like help people come back to Christ. Um, I know that we're talking about hypocrisy, and I understand it's talking about the speck in the brother's eye, and that we're all sinners. But there's also a judging, um, and I think, like, from a Pharisee standpoint, it's like they probably threw the book at a lot of people because of their their sins. And I think that, that there's still that harsh reality of what you do to people, and he's going to go back and go, why did you do that? Why are you, why are you, you know? Okay, let me answer a couple things. First of all, the place you're thinking about is Matthew 18. That's the chapter about going to people. Number two is I want to make sure we're not all assuming that he's speaking to the Pharisees up here in Matthew chapter 7. Okay, this isn't a Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his disciples, probably a larger crowd, and there may have been Pharisees there. But this is not a speech directly to the Pharisees. And the reason that's very important to get that context is because he's talking to us. He's talking to his followers. The Sermon on the Mount is the ethic by which we're supposed to live, the standard that his disciples will have. So let's not lose and spend too much time worrying about what the Pharisees did. Let's worry about what we are doing. Okay, So that's an important point to make. But the rest of it, I completely agree with. So let's just keep that. I want to keep that in mind. Jeremy. I think one other issue that we might have to think about is that's not going to be something that we necessarily all agree on, what the standard is. And even if we are going to go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount as our standard, that's not something that we could live up to anyways. So that's, I think, part of the conflict within us is are you advocating that though that we not worry about it because none of us could meet it anyway? No, but uh, no, not at all. But what I'm saying is that one can talk about a standard, but there is a crisis that occurs for each of us, I think, when we realize that not being able to make that standard is part of the problem too. Yeah, okay. I think we get the point. One other thing I want to piggyback off Ryan's comment just about we, we seem to be talking about the word hypocrisy a little bit, and it, it's in the verse, so it's, it's fair to talk about. But do you see Jesus' practical illustration? Like, even if you wanted to help your brother, you can't do it because you can't see enough to do it right. Because your judgmental attitude is blinding you. Do you see that? I mean, he's making the, the metaphors very clear, but we often miss it. Look at it at a practical level. Jesus said a lot of very practical things, and this is one of them. So even if you're going to try to help your brother in a corrective sense, or you're going to tell us, hey, I have the right attitude, he's, he's saying that if you're doing it in a judgmental way, even trying to correct is not going to work, because you can't see to do it. And we know people whose judgment blinds them. We know people who say the wrong things, because their judgment biases everything that they see. We know people who come about it the wrong way because their judgmental attitude has already predetermined the outcome right from the beginning. So you can't do it even if you wanted to. 
Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who's given you advice and you just know their advice is coming from the most biased, prejudiced, judgmental place? And it's just like, it's because you see me this way, like anybody else would have probably given you good advice, but they're giving you this advice that's just steeped in their own bias and judgmentalism of you. And that actually is very harmful sometimes. I mean, more often than not, they're giving you the wrong advice that can hurt you because they're too blind to see. And what blinded them? Their own attitudes. You know? And another way to say it is, of course, first, get rid of the sin in your own life. It operates on both levels. The judgment is sin, by the way, being judgmental. But it's, it's also a call to being pure yourself. But I think, as Jeremy pointed out, like none of us are ever going to be pure 100%. Like If you're going to wait in the corner until you had it perfect and then go correct somebody, it never happened. Okay? So I think you've got to look at it at those two places. It operates on both of those levels. Like Certainly, I would commend you to take the sin out of your own eye or take the sin out of your own life before you go around on a worldwide tour of correcting everybody else around you. Okay? But at the same time, at the very least put down the judgmental attitude that blinds you from being able to correct the people around you. Angela? But the most judgmental people that I know are like the ones that think they have no sin. They're the ones that think, oh, I have no with my sin. And then that's when they come over here and they talk to you and they look down on you. If we, could, if we could get rid of judgmental Christians, there'd be like, what, seven of us left at the end of the day? <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that what we studied in our series on non-Christians? that that's one of the highest things that people look at us as. So if we are going to look at the practical aspects, I agree with you, except that this, the command is still clear to us. I understand it rarely works, but that's our sin as a church, too. Maybe it's the type of people we attract, you know? I don't know. Maybe we just attract people who are naturally judgmental. Yeah. I've read this verse previously and had this trouble, but just sort of ignored it. Like, the whole first, like, sentence or two sentences, I guess, like, that do not judge, or you too will be judged. Like the whole consequence doesn't seem that big of a deal to me, because God's going to judge us all anyway, and God's going to judge us on His standard anyway. So, like, how's that a threat that I should be afraid of? Let, let me let, let's let Morgan answer that one if you want. You want to? Yeah, I, I agree in the sense that I think God's going to judge us on His standard, which is perfection, which you hear you know at the end of chapter five. But that those verses scare the crap out of me, because every time, I mean, I consider judgment a, a serious issue that I have in my life, and. I, I don't know. I just take those words seriously. A couple chapters before this, he's talking about you will not be forgiven if you do not forgive. Okay? When we come to the words judge, we have to be careful that we not just think of it too narrowly either. When he says that for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, think of that in the context of a lack of forgiveness type judgment from above. Like, if you want to point out every sin that somebody has and not forgive them for it, or if you want to point out every sin and say, oh, the standard is perfection, you're not perfect, you're out, you're bad, you're evil, the promise in here almost seems to be that not they're going to judge you that way too, but God may judge you that way. So I think we've got to look at judgment on a number of levels. Maybe that's why the word judgment can be scary, because it isn't just saying you judge other people, they might judge you. You might think, who cares what other people think of me? I don't care. Jeremy? I feel like it's saying is it's not talking about some kind of eternal judgment that we're looking at at the end or rewards or anything. I think it's saying when you judge in the same way, you'll be judged by those people. So I'm not so much worried about this being some kind of extra standard on top of whatever perfect standard there is at the end of this life. 
This is just common sense. When you do it, it happens, you know, it will happen to you in the same way. Okay, I mean, that's, that's one view, and I believe that at a minimum that view applies. What I'm saying is I believe you can actually read more into it that if you use that measure to judge others, that's the measure that's going to be applied to you. And since most of us don't care what other people think for the most part, I mean, it has no, it, it, in other words, that neuters the meaning of the verse, it seems like. like so somebody's going to judge you the way you judge them. Like, so what are you going to do to me? I think it actually has a much deeper meaning at a secondary level that means that maybe that's the measure God's going to apply to you, the way that you judge other people. He's going to turn around and say, fine, no forgiveness in you, no mercy in you, no grace in you, no love in you. Now, do we believe that God's going to literally withdraw that from you? It's the same as the warning passages we've looked at before. Where he says, if you don't forgive people, I will not forgive you. Do we really believe he's just not going to forgive you completely like you're out? That's the tension in those passages. They're stern warnings. Yeah. I have a huge problem with what you said right now. Huge. Because if we say, do not judge, and judge means do not devalue, then how can we think that God will devalue us? God is not going to judge us the way we judge. We're human. We're flawed. But it's not, it's not going to be in an oppressive, devaluing kind of way. Let me point something out. You supplied the word devalued, right? That's not in the scripture anywhere. That was a test that your professor added, right? Do you believe in a God that will not forgive you if you don't forgive other people? Do you believe in a God that will separate some people and say, as much as I love you, you're going to eternal punishment? No, I believe that we separate ourselves. I think when Jesus, I'm Westman, okay? When Jesus died on that cross, he saved the whole world, except we are not partaking in it. Okay, fair enough. Monique. This is like a disease that plagues Christianity. We do not fear God enough. That's it. Like, period. We're like, oh, whatever. I can do whatever I want. Jesus loves me. He forgives it anyway. He cares. He forgave me before I did it. He forgives me. He went on the cross, and I'm just forgiven. And, like, I'm just going to go back to the place where, you know, that guy's like, Lord, Lord. But I casted out demons in your name, and I did this, and I did that. And, you know, God's like, depart from me. I never knew you. That verse freaks me out because how many of us here casted out demons? You know, there's going to be people that are doing all kinds of stuff for the church, for God, in the name of God, that believe in Jesus. Satan knows who Jesus is. The demons believe in Jesus. They know he exists. And I think we're going to be surprised, like, in the end, you know, because, like, you need to fear God. And I do think he can come back at you the way you attack other people. Amen. Amen. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Anyone else want to weigh in on this uh, heated agreement? <laughs> yeah. I think the problem is that this verse has a lot to do with hypocrisy, and it has a lot to do with how hypocrisy can destroy your witness. For me, personally, I swear like a sailor. It would be ridiculous of me to go up to another Christian and be like, you shouldn't swear because the Bible says you can swear. It's wrong. Then they hang out with me, and I'm like, you know, going off or whatever. That devalues my witness, of course, so to swear. It's a whole other issue. Um, I think the problem with that is you have to be careful where you draw the line. The plank isn't saying you have to be completely sinless before you call somebody on their sin. It's saying that you need to be careful that it's not inundated in your life and try and say, you're wrong, but it's okay for me. Yeah, or I think that it obstructs your view from seeing it clearly. It could be any sin. But I think that to also then say, because we agree at one level that it would denigrate another person, but cannot mean that God will somehow judge you by the measure you judge others, 
we have plenty of instances and places where God says, if you do certain things, that's the measure I will use with you. I agree with you, it's hyperbole, by the way, and, and that's why I say it's a warning passage, because I think most of the warning passages are hyperbole. They're there to make the point. They're not there for us to say, oh yeah, there's new requirements for salvation. Not only do you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to forgive everybody that you've ever known, and you've had to get their forgiveness, and now you can't judge them, because then we'd be adding things. So I totally agree it's hyperbole. But let's not miss that that hyperbole seems to be somehow laced in here when he talks about the measure that will be used against you. Jeremy? I only would say, John, to push back, that we already, that we, the group, came to a, a significant conclusion when we went through 13 weeks of this, that part of this whole Sermon on the Mount was something that we couldn't really do. I mean, we need to try. It's not about if, it's when, but at the same time we recognize the fact that Christ is setting up a standard here to make a point. You can't do it. Even, you know, even if you wanted to, you can. And we already talked about that earlier on in the, in the sermon. So keeping that conclusion, or at least that thought in mind, I think, again, pushing back on this, that lacing it in that God will hold you to that measure is just that. It's lacing it in. And I think that when we think about the experience of judging, that we're still thinking about, at least I'm still thinking about, what I do to other people when I judge. That is holding them to a measure that they hold me to because I have judged them. And, and whether or not there's an additional level to it, sure, but I, I don't even know what that is, what that looks like. It doesn't make sense. Okay, Randy? I don't think we're supposed to hold on to that conclusion and ponder on that. I think we're supposed to read this and strive towards it without keeping in mind that we can't do it and work at it like, like we could and put that out of our mind. Okay, let's put that comment on hold because I want to come back to the doability of this. Ryan. I think there's a spiritual um, conceitedness with Christians sometimes. And I think that I think this verse is, is made to keep us in check because he, I, I think Jesus says it pretty firmly, like, you hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye. So obviously he's directly talking to him going, look, like, you guys need to just check on yourselves, focus, check your life, you know, make sure that you guys are living the right life that you can. And we all can check our lives, you know every day that we live and go, look, how am I living my life? What am I doing? And I think when we take the focus of other people and put it on ourselves, that I don't think that we're going to judge people because we're focusing on ourselves to do the right thing. Okay, yeah, Monique? Um, I think that kind of to go on like Jeremy was saying and stuff, that um, because it is showing this impossible standard and like it's obvious in the way Jesus sets it out, like, look, you're all falling short. Like, here's this impossible standard so you should be reaching forward, don't settle, like, down here, because you need to be, you know, striving for this, is why he's like, so don't freaking judge, because, hey, you know, it humbles you, like, this is the perfect standard, so don't judge others, because you should all be working for this together, but what I'm really perplexed by is where this whole throwing pearls to pigs comes in. I'm, I'm going there next. You guys are talking about this like it's a, some impossible standard. Now, there are some things in the Sermon on the Mount that I think are impossible, you know, because they're impossible to me. I struggle with them all the time. Is it so hard not to judge? I mean, for, obviously for some people it is. But for us, for the people that are in this room, is it so hard for us to avoid judgment? Doesn't it really take humility and a recognition of who we are and our own depravity and our own right relationship with God and where he is and our own need for grace? I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but I also don't know that it's impossible. 
I don't know that this isn't one of those ones that we could live and strive for. I kind of agree with Randy on this one, that maybe we should just go for it. It might not be as hard as it seems that the next time you want to judge someone else, you just don't. And work on it inside and go, wait a minute. I mean, the reason I think it might be easy is because it doesn't take me more than three seconds to, to realize how wretched I am. It doesn't take that long. I don't have to like think like, well, let me remember the last time I sinned. Yeah, it'd be like five seconds ago, probably. And that's all we have to do if we would just turn that focus on us and we would remember that the plank is there. And maybe that would make us more humble. Okay, Philip. Then we've been talking, I feel like, almost the whole time, assuming that this is just like Christian to Christian judging works, but I feel like that, that there should be some difference there. We're saying, hey, we're measuring a Christian by a standard. It's different for a non-Christian. So I think, especially when we brought it to begin with, for a non-Christian to say, well, you're not supposed to judge. And like, well, who says I'm not supposed to judge you? You're like, you're not meeting this standard. Like, I don't know. Like, is that am I way off? No. First of all, he is primarily speaking to his followers. Okay, that's where we start with why a lot of this has to do with that standard. But he's not exclusively speaking to its followers. In fact, you could very quickly ascertain that the idea of not judging doesn't have to just apply. It doesn't, the object doesn't have to just be other Christians. You shouldn't judge anyone in that negative, denigrating, kind of judgmental way. I guess judgmental has become such a tainted word in our society, we could just use it, you know, almost to define itself. So it's not just limited to us. But the ethic is, don't do that with them. I mean, Jesus had grace and love for people who followed him and for people who chose not to. It's that posture that we take that looks and says grace, mercy, love, that attitude to everybody as opposed to judgment, even if, by the way, they're not living up to his standard and they have no reason to because they don't even follow him. And we see that all the time. You guys don't have to think long to think of people who are in the church, for example, who have like every negative word for anybody who's outside of the church. And you know that's steeped in pride and fear and red-neckedness or whatever it is that causes Christians to do that, you know. But whatever it is, that's not Jesus' attitude at all. Not like, hey, we're in, you're out. You know, there wasn't any of that. You know, he grieved when somebody walked away, like the rich young ruler who didn't want to sign up for the deal. He wasn't like, oh, you're a bad person. He was sad. Yeah. I just think it would help us all in all of our areas of life to remember that nothing's impossible for Christ. It also says that in the Bible, when we drive towards perfection, keep your eyes on the prize. You know, if we don't believe that and keep that in, all, in our thoughts and all things, then we're not going to be able to accomplish it. Okay. And we've also not struggled to avoid sin to the point of shedding blood either. So that's another standard we could try to meet. Brittany? Um, I was just thinking about it. Yeah, I think most of us want to take the attitude of like, look, help me, don't judge me, help me, love me. 
Come alongside of me. Hold me accountable. You know, teach me, mentor me, anything but judge me. This judgment is useless when it comes from that judgmental place. It doesn't help, and that's what Jesus ultimately points out. You can't do the thing you wanted to do, which is remove the speck. Even if you want to do it for good or bad motives, until you get the plank out of your eye, you can't do it. All right, I'm going to do one more verse because a couple of you guys want to know what it is. This one, Matthew 7, 6. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, right after that verse, <laughs> Matthew throws this in. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. What does this verse mean? We've all read it and then skipped. We've all read it and skipped right over it to the next verse, which is about ask, seek, knock. Oh, hey, that's, that's for me. Ask and seek and a knocking, you know. I'm all about that. The pigs, dogs, I, whatever. Monique? I thought maybe it's like someone who, it's not about judging, like someone who's not a Christian might not understand or value some of the wisdoms of Christianity. Like sometimes it takes a spirit to understand certain things. So maybe it's pointless to throw like spiritual wisdoms at someone who's not going to believe it or take it or maybe this is about us condemning like those outside or having this us them attitude and and then they can take it and throw it back at us and tear us apart because that happens all the time we see christians get into quote unquote argument with a non-christian and they are chewed up spit out like completely but okay angel maybe matthew was racist was racist all right good <laughs> good let me let me, let me just give you a couple of ideas. First of all, the part about what is sacred, I mean, what does that mean? Don't give them what is sacred. What is that? It usually refers to like the sacred food, bread, or the meat that might be in the temple, tabernacle, those kinds of things. That's a reference to that. So in this case, he's saying like, don't take the sacred food from the temple and throw it to the dogs or the pigs. That's what the metaphor is referring to. He has just finished talking about judgment. This is a slight variation really dealing with discernment. Remember I said you are supposed to make judgment calls. You are supposed to evaluate, test, figure things out, not judge other people. This part seems to be saying you need to make a judgment call, a discernment. And it is dealing with talking about the scriptures, maybe talking to other people about Christ. It is the idea that he's teaching to his disciples that you may not want to just go in there and throw what's sacred to people who aren't ready to receive it, people who don't get it. Decide whether that's the right thing to do. Too many of us know that there have been situations where people have tried to force the gospel in ways that don't work, and, and the ramifications have been really bad, not only for the person receiving it, but just for the fame of Christ in general. And that seems to be the closest that I could formulate as to what he's really, and why it comes right after the judgment section. That whole thing about tear you to pieces, kind of reminds us of that, like people will turn. They don't appreciate it. You would no more take the sacred food from the temple and throw it over to pigs or dogs and have them chew it up, okay? Anyone want to comment on it, say anything else about it? Isn't that a, I mean, seriously, that the dogs and pigs, isn't that a racist comment? Of course, pigs are not something that like a Jewish audience are going to revere, right, right, right. <laughs> dogs was a derogatory term and pigs are unclean, so you could make that comment, but you got to understand that Who's he talking about? I mean, this doesn't apply like to the Gentiles. This applies to anybody who is not ready to really receive that message. It could be a Jewish audience as well. I don't see how this is talking about like the gospel message 
at all. Like it doesn't fit at all with anything that's being talked about in the passage. And so I can, that, that seemed to be at least, if I understood right, what you're saying, well, this is what they're talking about, that you're not supposed to give to this. This sacred thing is the gospel. And I don't, I don't see where that's come from at all. Okay. This is how I see it. Is, since it's coming from the judgment stuff, let's say you have a friend who, who has issues with alcohol, like actually alcoholism. Now, if he's not, if this person isn't a Christian, would you, I at least would not say, the Bible says you shouldn't get drunk, and so I'm going to help you through this. You know, like, that's not the way I would go. The way I would go is saying, hey, you know, like, this is a problem I'm seeing in your life. That, that's where I see the judgment factor of, like, why, why would you even go to, you know, God says you shouldn't get drunk, and I see that you do this every three nights of the week. You know, don't do it anymore. You know, like that to me seems ridiculous, but I would still say if this person is someone I love and I'm a friend with, I would see it as, as something, hey, you know, I would like to help you with this. And they still may turn and tear your pieces anyways, but that's how I see this kind of a practical idea, at least that's how I see it. Okay. You're still confused by how we get the link to scripture or evangelism or anything from what is sacred, right? I think the metaphor is saying you wouldn't give this stuff to animals that wouldn't appreciate it. I don't know how you make that call, but that's probably why it comes right after the judgment passages and discernment stuff, because you're sitting in a place of judgment when you decide whether somebody's capable of receiving what's sacred. That's probably why it's in such close proximity to be careful how you judge or don't judge, because you might just decide, come on, they're pagans, they shouldn't even listen to any of this stuff. Or they're sinners, or they're heathen, or whatever, and he's like putting the two together. There is a truth that you shouldn't give to people what they can't even appreciate, but you've got to be careful how you make that judgment call. Philip? Jesus did not limit, like, hey, I refuse to give the gospel to you. Like, you're not worthy. Like, even the Pharisees, like, he, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't, like, an exclusive, hey, well, let me pick, you can make it, you can't. Yeah, he picked his disciples as people that would follow him, but he wasn't saying, hey, I'm not going to even, like, allow the message to be spread to you. You know what? I would take issue with that, and we'll talk about that next week a little bit as he begins to tell people not to tell certain people. And a little bit of just, there. I, I don't think that he gave the gospel message to the Pharisees. If you look really carefully, like, what do you define as the gospel message? There were a lot of things that he didn't say to certain people. Possibly because he didn't think that they were going to hear it. So just, and I'm not saying he thinks the Pharisees are pigs or dogs, but I don't know that the statement that Jesus just walked around giving the gospel message to every single person is true, he waited until people were ready for certain things. Okay, we'll look at that next week. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, if you've gone to somebody multiple times and talked to them, whatever the issue is, like, and they just have a heart, they don't want to hear it. If you keep doing it, they will turn around and pretty much tear your pieces. Like, sometimes it's just, you know, choose your battles wisely. Yeah. All right, let's do this. We're going to close off right now. Here's, here's how we're closing. You guys remember what's about to happen so I can set you up for next week. Jesus has been up. He's up here when he did the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, He left Nazareth. He went down, got baptized in the Jordan River, maybe down here, maybe here. People debate. He went out into the wilderness. Then he went back up to the Sea of Galilee. Okay, And we showed you that picture way back when. This is actually probably the site where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. At least traditionally that's where it's been overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And now he's about to start to descend from this mountaintop where he's given the Sermon on the Mount, and he's, he's going to go back into the city of Capernaum, which is not too far away from here. It's probably 10 minutes by car. 
or maybe even less. He's going to go down there and spend time ministering and healing because the ministry has been announced. He's done the whole sermon, all this stuff, now he's going to spend some time. That's where we're going next week to talk about some of his healing ministry. And here's what I want you to start thinking about. How much of that is still active in our churches? We talked about that a little bit before, but how do we deal with healing? How do we deal with that? Just start letting that kind of sink in. We're going to come back next week and talk about it. Let's close and pray. Lord, I'm thankful to you for all of the comments in this room because I know in faith that your spirit speaks in this room and wrestles with us. That just when we think we have the answer, another comment causes us to think and struggle. Thank you, Lord. Because in that struggle, in that wrestling, we hope that the truth is coming out. Be in all of our comments, be in all of our minds. And as we leave here tonight, as we continue to discuss these things, will you transform our hearts so we can do something about them? Lord, I don't think it's too hard to turn inward and find humility and find grace and love and mercy for others and to take off a judgmental attitude. I do believe that that's something that we can work on, just even in this room, amongst ourselves called as brothers and sisters, are going to live with you forever in heaven. And we have a chance to get to know one another here. Help us to get started on that road, Lord. Help your word to grow within us. Challenges this week to continue to rediscover your words in Matthew. Be with us until we meet again next week. Pray this in your name. Amen.